Late morning, just before lunch, one of Lin Chi's monks comes up to him half-crazed, out of his mind with ecstasy, babbling about Buddha. Says he's seen him. Says he was just walking down the road when suddenly Buddha mind, enlightenment, nirvana, the big payoff. And the monk can't stop talking about it. Lin Chi strikes a match, lights a pipe, and takes a long drag, leaving the monk hanging, waiting for his reward. And instead of a reward, Lin Chi blows a cloud of smoke, reaches out, and smacks the monk. You meet the Buddha on the road says Lin Chi, kill him. Imagine the monk's face. Better yet, imagine your own face. You've been to church, you've gone to the zendo, you took your bat mitzvah money and ran. You're an atheist or an agnostic or you're an orthodox believer without a cause. Maybe you've tried not to think about it. You've opted for sex, drugs, electronica, You've opted for career. You're poor and you never had any options. You've run away from your family. You've started a family. You've given up on God, family, and nation. And then, when you were minding your own business, getting on with things, you stumbled upon something. Him, her, a higher power, Buddha, Jesus, Shiva, the Mysterium Tremendum. The big white whale. (laughs) And even though you're no seeker, you weren't looking and you didn't ask to find. You had to admit God is great. Allah Akbar, holy ghost power. (laughs) To which Lin Chi says, super. You found it. Now you can kill it. The Buddha you meet is not the true Buddha, but an expression of your longing. If this Buddha is not killed, he will only stand in your way. When Lin Chi contributed the idea of deicide to his godless religion a thousand years ago, he was talking not just about a long-dead teacher who had come to be known as Buddha, but about the dominant ideologies of his own day. One true path, one true story, one true anything. The preachers and the gurus, the Christian coalition, the secular masses, the heart that wants what it wants and the mind that always thinks better, these are the Buddhas we meet on the road. The Buddhas we know and love and listen to, the Buddhas we all are. Faced with modern-day atheists or fundamentalists or guys who thump thousand-year-old Zen aphorisms hard as any Bible, Lin Chi would probably say the same thing. Don't be a chump. A single story never explained anything. The second reading 
is from Paul Tillich, a German-American theologian and Christian existentialist philosopher. Tillich was one of the four most influential Protestant theologians of the 20th century. The name of this infinite and inexhaustible depth and ground of all being is God. That depth is what the word God means. And if the word has not much meaning for you, translate it and speak of the depths of your life, the source of your being, of your ultimate concern, of what you take seriously without any reservation. Perhaps, in order to do so, you must forget everything traditional you have ever learned about God, perhaps even that word itself. So one really quick thing here. In your order of service, after the sermon, it says a sharing of gratitude, something like that. We can kill that off. That's actually a mistake, a typo. Uh, But here's what you can do if you want to infuse that in your singing. After the sermon, rather than introduce the hymn, John's just going to go right into it. And so if you're feeling like singing and you're feeling grateful, just channel that into our closing hymn. (laughs) But there will be no formal sharing of gratitude. So earlier this week, I was talking with some of the religious education staff here at the church uh, about the topic of God, since that's what we're exploring this month. And honestly, I think um, she will slip into other months as well. We're a church, after all. (laughs) And in in this conversation, we were explaining, we were talking about how inadequate language and words are. Somebody brought up the example of love. You know, we say all you need is love, or I love you, or I love you chocolate or Thai food or whatever it is. Love makes the world go round. But what are we talking about, really? Are we talking about eros love, that erotic, sensual, desirous love? Maybe sometimes. Or filial love, that love of a child for a parent? Or agape love, that divine, unconditional, active love in the world? What does love mean? It means something, obviously, because every day adults and children die a little bit from a lack of love. Love as listening, as encouragement, as support, as compassion, as unconditional. So friends, we know love is real, but it is not easy to define. And things get even more complicated when we suggest that God here's the equation, is love. We barely have a handle on the power and mystery of love, and now we've thrown God into the equation? you got to be kidding me. So you see the problem with words, and with the G word, God, especially. These letters, those three letters, can trigger all sorts of emotional responses. Anxiety, frustration, disgust, confusion, comfort. If you think of the 23rd Psalm and Lord, it's four letters, Lord, but Lord walking with you in those times of struggle. 
And it's no surprise, given that range from confusion and disgust to comfort, that some people just wish we wouldn't use it at all because we can't define it. But trying to define God misses the point. God, in my understanding, this is my story. It will weave in with your stories. In my understanding, God is an experience. Like you might have in front of an amazing piece of art or as you listen to music, or as you sit in a darkened theater and watch a play unfold in front of you. It is an experience. And it is important to remember that God is not God's name. God is not a Christian, or a Jew, or a Muslim, or anything else. Although I do sometimes like to imagine God as an atheist in this intense state of cognitive dissonance, <laughs> funny to imagine. But, but in all seriousness, don't confuse the finger pointing toward the moon for the moon itself. The word God is simply a symbol that points to something ineffable, unknowable, ultimately a joyous and sometimes terrifying mystery. The other thing that's important to say is that God is not a problem to be solved. As Karen Armstrong notes in her book, The Case for God, a wonderful scholarly tome, she says the French philosopher Gabriel Marcel distinguished between a problem, a problem, something that which you meets you in its entirety and is there. So a problem would be a, a, a tree that falls down on the road. You can see all of it, the whole problem, the whole tree, and it's blocking your way and you can't get through with your car. That's a problem. He distinguishes between a problem and a mystery. Mystery being something you find yourself caught up in and whose, in, whose essence you do not see in its entirety. So whereas with the problem, you see the tree or whatever it is in front of you in its entirety, with the mystery, you're caught up in it, and you can't see the entirety of the mystery. Perhaps God or goddess or emptiness or Brahman is like that, a mystery that grabs us, a thing to be experienced, more a verb than a noun. Something that makes a claim on our lives that speaks to the depths of our being but can never be fully known. So where do I, my story, where do I see God afoot in the order of things? Certainly, absolutely, in human beings and in creation itself. I'll start with humans. I believe, and it's affirmed every time I officiate at a memorial service, that a human being is ultimately an unknowable mystery. Even at a service with all of you, if we were celebrating someone's life, with all of you here, we would each have a piece of the truth, a story, an anecdote, an experience of that person. All of those together would still not capture the essence, the heart, the, the mystery of the person that we were here to remember. It scratches the surface. And it's a hard reality to remember. Often, so often, 
We see one another not as mystery, but as producers or consumers, even disposable at times. And with habit and routine and busyness thrown in, we can forget that the person in front of us is indeed a mystery, that there is a divine, mysterious spark there. And I'll be honest with you, times in my life, in my relationship with my wife or with good friends, when things aren't going well, it's often because I assume there's a single story about that person, that I know it, I know what they're going to say next. (laughs) You've been there. I know what they're thinking. And I know how they're feeling. And with that mindset, I have completely destroyed the mystery. Any possibility of that person surprising me, bringing me to a new state of awareness of what they have in their deepest self. That kind of thinking kills the mystery. It takes hard work to see another human being, to see ourselves as amazing, mysterious creatures, capable, not always doing, but capable of incarnating love and possibility and hope and justice into this world. It takes hard work to say to our partner or our friend or our workmate, I promise to see you with new eyes each day as the person you are becoming, not as the person I think you are or that I want you to be. Hear this again. I promise to see you with new eyes each day as the person you are becoming, not as the person I think you are or as the person I want you to be, but as the person you are becoming. So if you want to know something about God, about the holy, the divine in another, practice deep listening. Practice empathy and compassion. Imagine the other is, in fact, the holy stepping toward you with wisdom or gifts to share. Our sermon-based small groups and new groups start in January. They are a place to practice seeing the holy in another as we share stories with one another. So God, in part, in the human, is mystery. As close as our next breath and heartbeat, as close as our neighbor, as close as whoever is sitting next to you in the pew. And... I see God not just in humans, but in creation, which is as confounding as quantum theory and black holes and as simple as the night sky twinkling above us. I don't know if you can see this. I I realize after the 9 o'clock service, a lot of people can't. But on this stole, which is, uh, I'll tell you eventually, over the years, you'll hear every story in the stole. But the part I want to share now, there's a big dipper right here. It's, It's pretty big bling. And in the receiving line, you can actually... You can, you can, there's like, there's like seven big, big crystal things here in the middle of the Milky Way and starry constellations. And there's a story behind this that I want to share with you. When I was 12, I went backpacking with my dad and my brother in the Rocky Mountains. And we hiked all day and by evening time set up camp by this lake, caught some lake trout, cooked a, had a fire, went to bed. At some point in the middle of the night, my dad woke up and undid the zipper on the tent, and we all kind of scooched out 
with our pillows and sleeping bags and ground pads and, and looked up. It could be down. <laughs> right? I mean, we say up, but it could just as easily be down. <laughs> it's amazing we don't fall off if you think of it as down. <laughs> but for the purpose of this story, I'll say we looked up at the Milky Way, and there's no city lights, there's no other lights at all, it's just the stars, and you can see the, the band of the Milky Way, and the stars are twinkling, and it's amazing, and all of a sudden, space and time collapse, and there's this sense of, I am stardust looking at stars and stardust. And I felt, as Peter Mayer sings in one of his songs, wine from water is not so small, but an even better magic trick is that anything is here at all. That night I felt the miracle of being, of my own being, and I sensed a divine invitation twinkling from those stars, and that is where I locate the seeds of my call to ministry, to serve that mystery. And later, of course, as I learned and read more about the Big Bang, I realized how really, truly amazing it all is. How when the universe was about a billion years old, get your mind around a billion, it's impossible, about a billion years old, in a little flash of time when it was only possible, so there's this expansion from the Big Bang, that million year mark marks the time when it is just spread out far enough but not too far that it'll just keep going, that galaxies can form. And so hundreds of billions of galaxies form at that moment in time, at that big bang from the hydrogen clouds that had been there. Before we get too far from the big bang, let me just back up. Big bang. Like shotgun sound? Cannon? Bomb? What do, what do you, what do, big bang, right? It's just, it's some language to try to point at something. And here's the point. Karen Armstrong writes, scientists know that the terms they use to describe natural cosmic mysteries, big bang, dark matter, black holes, dark energy, those are metaphors, They cannot adequately translate the mathematical insights into words. And I would suggest to you that words like God and miracle and redemption and incarnation and even resurrection are metaphors that cannot accurately be translated into words. That spiritual experience cannot accurately be translated. Back to that second billion years. So after these galaxies formed, the universe added layers of beauty and complexity. The stars themselves burned burned red hot in their cores and new elements were created. Hydrogen transformed into helium, transformed into carbon, and so on. Stars exploded, sending new elements out into space. Elements, literally stardust, that billions of years later, turn into life. Hydrogen into bacteria, multicellular organisms, and now today, giraffes, these pews, this fake, beautiful Christmas tree. (laughs) 
all of this. All of you. This space. All of it. So the question, the question on my heart, literally on my heart, is this. If the story of the universe is indeed an unfolding prayer filled with possibility and potential and transformation and love and creativity, and that has brought us all to this point this morning, what does that say about how we should live our lives? In other words, as you look about the world, what are the realities the tendencies that are worthy of your loyalty? What are your ultimate concerns? The things you take seriously without any reservation. The things that speak to the depth of your being. Based on the mystery as I see it within and on the mystery of this cosmic story, There are two things, there are more, but two I'll share this morning that are worthy of my loyalty, of my commitment, that are ultimately important to me, of ultimate concern. The first one is, on a fundamental level, this reality reveals that we are a part of everything, and everything is a part of us. As Albert Einstein put it, a human being is a part of a whole called by the universe. The delusion of separateness, separateness due to class or race or sexual orientation or gender identification, the illusion of separateness is a kind of prison. Our task is to free ourselves from this prison, to awaken to not go back to sleep, to awaken by embracing our connection to all that is. Whether that starts by joining a sermon-based small group where you begin to experience the stories that connect you to people that seem so different, or by staring into the heavens and realizing, really realizing in your bones that that which blossomed forth as cosmic egg 14 billion years ago now blossoms forth as you, as one's community, as all the other life on this planet. The ultimate concern for me is awareness, is waking up to that reality, trying to live and breathe and recognize those deep connections. It demands my loyalty. Second, Sacred reality is dynamic. There is a transforming power in every relationship, in every activity, in atoms coming together and being separated, in everything that makes this a dynamic universe. From the birth of a star to the birth of a child, to the death of a loved one, to a star's eventual collapse, the universe is filled with the mysterious transforming power of relationship. We are held in relationship. An appropriate response, an ultimate concern to this sacred reality for me is to align myself 
with that transforming power, to engage in creative, transforming interactions of whatever sort are available to me, to any of us. And in that way, we mimic the divine presence that surrounds us. I, re- I realize that was a little maybe heady with the Big Bang stuff and some science in there, so I want to back up and say, in case I wasn't clear, here's what I'm saying. God God, as I understand it, is woven into reality. It is the thread that connects and sustains us all. It's in the human heart. It is a dynamic, playful, transforming power that gets a hold of us, that awakens us, that lures us toward creating greater love and hope and possibility in this world. And remember, God is not God's name. And remember, religion isn't just a head game. It's a heart game. It's a game that takes practice. Karen Armstrong writes, Religion over the centuries was not primarily something that people thought, but something they did. Its truth was acquired by practical action. So there are some things that all of you can do, that we can do as a faith community to help us build a dedicated practice. Prayer is one. Writing can be another. Meditation can be one. Deep listening. Those all point to something, lead us somewhere beyond words. And in doing these practices... And I know it's happened to you because you've shared these stories with me. You often experience what the Greeks called ecstasis, ecstasis, literally ecstasy. This stepping outside of yourself and the known story and somehow transcending normal experience. This can happen when we make a practice of opening our heart to another human being, to the cosmos. And this is the point of religion, not the doctrine and the dogma and the creeds. The point of religion, as Karen Armstrong writes, is to help us live richly here and now. To experience the transcendent. To be generous and large-hearted and courageous and loving instead of grasping and mean-spirited. It is to honor the mystery that we sense in each human being, and to create societies that protect and welcome the stranger, the poor, and the oppressed, maybe it really all does boil down to love God, however you know that, and love and care for your neighbor. If we make this a practice, it is possible, as Karen Armstrong says, for us to live on a higher plane and to wake up to our true selves. It is possible. Kill the Buddha. See the mystery within. Feel the mystery among. And find the mystery beyond. May it be so. And amen.